we are brought to you by progressive Christianity. Put some quote marks around that. This is probably the worst prayer in this best-selling book on prayer. Um, now, Dr. Shaniqua has made her prayer available to everybody free on her website, so I'm going to be reading it in, entire, in its entirety. I'm also going to look at how she has defended this prayer, and this is not because... This is not because I'm trying to create inflammatory content that you all like get stirred up with. I look at this as an opportunity to analyze worldview shifts going on in our culture and and a chance for us to try to be Christian in how we evaluate things. So please join me on a thoughtful journey through what is a very reckless prayer being offered in the name of God. So this is from a rhythm of prayer. This is the part that uh, Dr. Shaniqua um, Walker Barnes has added to it. Here is her full prayer. I'll add some commentary as I read through it here. Dear God, please help me to hate white people, or at least to want to hate them. At least I want to stop caring about them individually and collectively. I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls, to stop believing that they can be better, that they can stop being racist. I'm not talking about the white anti-racist allies who've taken up this struggle against racism with their whole lives, the ones who stand vigil for weeks outside jails, where black women are killed, who show up in Charlottesville and Ferguson and Baltimore and Pasadena to take a public stand against racism and police brutality, who are so committed to fighting white supremacy that their own lives bear the, the wounds of its scars. No, those aren't the people I want to hate. I'm not even talking about the ardent racists either, the strident segregationists who mow down nonviolent anti-racist protesters who open fire on black churchgoers or who plot acts of racial terrorism hoping to start a race war. Those people are already in hell. There's no need to waste hatred on them. Perhaps, how, um, however, you could make sure that they don't take the rest of us with them, that their attempts at harming others are thwarted and that they don't gain access to positions of power. My prayer... And notice that she, she's zeroing in who she really wants to hate. This is the whole beginning of the prayer is, I want to hate white people. Then it starts to get qualified. Okay, I don't want to overreact to it. It's qualified. Not every white person out there. She wants to hate a specific kind of white person. And she goes on and says, my prayer is that you would help me to hate the other white people. You know, the nice ones. The Fox News loving, Trump supporting voters who don't see color, but who make thinly veiled racist comments about those people. The people who are happy to have me over for dinner, but alert the neighborhood watch anytime an unrecognized person of color passes by their house. The people who welcome black people in their churches and small groups, but brand us as heretics if we suggest that Christianity is concerned with the poor and the oppressed. The people who politely tell us that we can leave when we call out the racial microaggressions we experience in their ministries. The first group of people that she wants to hate, in particular, are... White people that are Trump supporting voters who are Fox News loving people who and then and then she adds more attributes to these people. They're basically subtle veiled racists and they, they talk about those people. Now, I, I just want to point out real quick progressive Christianity, which this very much this whole book very much represents, I think, progressive Christian values and thinking. It's, it's extremely political. I think progressive Christians are at least as political, if not more political, than conservative Christians generally are. I think that's an important thing for us to recognize because progressive Christianity started with criticisms that, that conservative Christians were too political and they were too dogmatic about their politics. Yet progressive Christianity, as I see it portrayed from, from people like this, they're more dogmatic about politics than you know, conservative Christians that I know. And I know a lot of conservative Christians. I would say that the majority of my friends are more leaning conservative. Does this mean that they're like, that they're, that you could describe them accurately with these terms? Trump supporting voters who don't see color, but make a thinly, make thinly veiled racist comments about those people. Personally, I've traveled in uh, very conservative Christian environments, and I've never heard thinly veiled comments about those people. Like never. I've heard this from people in my life who are not Christian or who pseudo Christians, but people who are like these strong value centered Christians who you would think of as conservative, who you probably, Dr. Shaniqua, you would probably call white people who are nice ones, who are Fox News loving Trump supporting voters. You would probably think of them that way, although they wouldn't think of themselves that way. You would probably consider them that like that. I've never heard them in private as, as me being a white guy. Like when they get me aside, they talk about those people. Like I've just never heard these comments. Um, so this is, this is what you, what you get with racism is an oversimplification of the other person. 
And this is bad when it's done to black people. And there's this oversimplification of what black people are, fill in the blank. And you have all these, all these negative statements about black people that then justify racism towards them. But you can also get this oversimplification towards white people or here, white people who are the nice ones, a special kind of white person. And this oversimplification, this storytelling about them, turning them into these sort of cartoon characters that can easily be hated, that so you can hate them more, um, that is just more racism. And this is where critical race theory, we'll talk more about this soon. Critical race theory, I think, comes in and it justifies this kind of this kind of bias and hatred. And it says, hey, it's not even bias. It's not even bad. It's in fact, you're just getting, you're becoming woke. You're, you're becoming awake to the reality of the world around you. But it's very unchristian. It's very unchristlike. As anybody who follows Jesus automatically knows. Now, I know what you're thinking. Maybe this prayer gets better. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. We'll get all the way to the end of the prayer. We'll get to Dr. Shaniqua's response to the prayer. And, and how she defends it against her critics is I think we should hear that out. I think we should listen and consider those things. But then she switches. She switches now in the next paragraph here on page 70 of the Rhythm of Prayer book. She switches to not only suggest that she wants to hate nice white Christians, but there's another group she wants to hate as well. Listen to the bitterness, the bitterness that is coming out through this prayer. And the prayer is affirming the bitterness. The prayer is not just acknowledging bitterness. We should acknowledge our bitterness in prayer. This is asking for more bitterness is what it's asking for. It's a very unchristian prayer in all reality. She goes on, but since I don't have many relationships with people like that, Trump supporters, perhaps they're not a good use of hatred either. Lord, grant me then, new category, the permission and desire to hate the white people who claim the progressive label, but who are really wolves in sheep's clothing. Now. Catch that term, wolves in sheep's clothing. Dr. Shaniqua is going to suggest that the people who are wolves in sheep's clothing are actually the people who claim they're progressive Christians but aren't fighting hard enough racism and they might have these sort of sort of um, subliminal racist thoughts. Now, biblically, wolves in sheep's clothing is a reference to people who pretend to be Christians. They rise up into leadership and they teach people false versions of Christianity because the gospel is the most important issue in Christianity, not racism, right? That's, that's a big deal. Now, the gospel touches racism, affects racism, destroys racism, but the gospel is the issue, not racism. But to her, this is, this is like her gospel is what it feels like. Uh, those who've learned, who'd she want to hate? Those who've learned enough history, read enough books, spent enough time in other countries to make themselves seem knowledgeable, even though that knowledge remains far removed from their hearts. Those whose unexamined white supremacy bubbles up at times, I'm not expecting. When I have my guard down and my heart open, Lord, if you can't make me hate them, at least spare me from their perennial gaslighting, white mansplaining, and white woman tears. I don't think she needs help hating these people. The hatred is evident. There's plenty of hatred to go around when it comes to this, these types of people with Dr. Shaniqua. She's already hating them. And we'll find in her defense, when she explains how she defends this prayer, we'll find that there's a one specific friend who made, who made an off comment that she's particularly hateful towards right now and she wants God to help her hate them. Lord, if it be your will, harden my heart. Stop me from striving to see the best in people. Stop me from being hopeful that white people can do and be better. Let me just pause and acknowledge this. Uh, I'm not trying to be rude to Dr. Shaniqua here, but the amount of self-righteousness that oozes off the pages of this book and everything I see from progressive Christians is covered in self-righteousness. It's just, it's like, it's almost as though um, self-righteousness is a quality to be uh, to be desired and sought after amongst progressive Christian values. And I, I fear that it's just another way in which it's really departed from Christianity. All right, um, yes. So, so here is where I think the self-righteousness it just oozes out. Like, forgive me, as a pastor, if someone says this out loud, I'm hearing this and I'm thinking, this is, I want to minister to this issue. When she says, Lord, if you can't make me hate them, at least spare me from their perennial gaslighting, white mansplaining, and white woman tears. This is a version of gaslighting anyways. The, these phrases, white mansplaining, white woman tears, these are racist terms that prop up racism uh, that as a Christian, I don't want to be on either side of that issue. Look, there's extremes on both sides. There's those who say there is no racism. There is no racism. And I even hear, I've even heard people say this, like, there's no racism. Um, this, this black woman's saying black things about racism. Like, that's just more racism. Like, yeah, you do have racist issues if, if you're saying those things. There's real racism in our culture, and it's a bad thing. And it's a significant issue right now. My issue with critical race theory and with, with things like this is this makes 
makes it a bigger problem instead of a smaller problem. This doesn't provide a solution. It provides more racism and more division and more class warfare. Whereas in Christ, there's a better solution, a better solution to racism. And the gospel itself is the solution where I no longer, I no longer look at people and evaluate their value, right? Their value or their moral authority or their storytelling authority based upon their race, class, gender, whatever. I just say in Christ, there's no Jew or Greek or slave or free. There's no male or female that we're all one in Christ. Being one is the solution to racism, not dividing even even more into these separate classes who have generations long uh, baggage against one another. This is not healthy and it's not Christian. Let me read on. She says, Lord, if it be your will, harden my heart. Stop me from striving to see the best in people. Stop me from being hopeful hopeful that white people can do and be better. This is that that self-righteousness. Let me imagine them instead as white hooded robes. Um, Let me imagine them as, as white hooded robes standing in front of burning crosses. Let me see them as hopelessly unrepentant, reprobate bigots who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and who need to be handed over to the evil one. Let me be like Jonah, unwilling for my enemies to change, or like Lot, able to walk away from them and their sinfulness without trying to call them to repentance. Let me stop seeing them as members of the same body. Free me from this burden of calling them to confession and repentance. Grant me a get-out-of-judgment-free card if I make white people the exception to your commandment to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. This is where you would expect the prayer to shift. Like if it was to shift, it would be a wrong and blasphemous prayer so far. It would be. But if it was to shift at least to get better, this is where you would expect her to say, I'm, I'm so wrong. My heart is so bitter. Lord, help me to realize that, that you've forgiven me for my mountain of sin. And here I am holding others in judgment for sins that don't compare to my own sins against you. Here I am, you know, not giving the grace that I was given to others. Here I'm being the unforgiving servant. Here I am in sin. Lord, I'm so sorry. Forgive my words to you. Like this is what I would expect even if I was to acknowledge, allow such a prayer. Instead, she says this, but I will trust in you, my Lord. You have kept my love and my hope steadfast even when they have trampled on it. Okay, even here where the prayer turns, it's still them versus her. Even when they have trampled on it, you have rescued me from the monster of racism when it sought to devour me. You have lifted up my head when it was low and healed my heart when it was wounded. You've not given me up to slavery or to Jim Crow or to the systems of structural oppression, but you've called me to be an agent in your ministry of justice and reconciliation. And you've not allowed me to languish alone, but you've lighted the path towards beloved community with the loving witness of the ancestors, elders, and sojourners who've come before me and who stand with me today. Thus, in the spirits of Fanny and Ida and Polly and Ella and Septima and Coretta, I pray and I press on in love. Amen. That's Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes giving her um, her prayer about racism. Now, how does she um, end her prayer? Uh, it doesn't really end with an acknowledgement that her attitude towards people is wrong. Like it doesn't, it doesn't do that. It, it ends with just like, God, you've helped me overcome racism. That's all. It's just like, a, a God, you've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bigger and better than all that. And really all of those people. <laughs> so good for you. Good for you. The mountain of self-righteous self-aggrandizement is, is like accomplished, completed at the end of the prayer there, but it's not what you might expect from a Christian prayer. Let's first look at Jesus. And then we'll look at her defense of this prayer, Dr. Shaniqua's defense, but Matthew five, this I think is what we need to keep in mind when we look at racism real racism which is a big deal okay i i do think that racism is a very significant issue right now today it's actually a bigger issue right now than it was even five years ago um but it was even a bigger issue 100 years ago I'm, and and it seems silly to me to be honest y'all I, I have a video on this i i did an interview with uh neil uh neil shenvey on the topic of critical race theory we spent the first like 30 minutes of the interview talking about how racism is a real problem both in our historic past and in our present that that I think is very true, and I think that we need to acknowledge this, like because it's true, and that there are people who are still suffering the effects and impacts of racism in their lives in negative ways today, and it's disproportionately against black people as well as other groups, um, not as much against white people, that's for sure. Okay, I I would acknowledge all that, but this is not the solution. Her prayer is not the solution, and critical race theory is not the solution. That's the rest of the interview. I'll link that interview below after the stream is over. But here, 
Jesus talks about this. He says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The first part's a quote from scripture. Uh, God tells the people of Israel to love their neighbors. Hate your enemy is more of a quote from rabbis. Jesus is confronting rabbis and what they're teaching, what they were teaching at the time, and they're mixing their traditions with scripture. Okay, so that's something to be aware of. But then he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love who? Your enemies. Love them. Pray. Pray for those who persecute you. Not pray about them, against them, that God would destroy them. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This, this is the idea like love them. Like, love them. Love your enemies. This is what Jesus tells us to do. Love, love our enemies. Shaniqua, if you, doctor, if you think that, you know, these basically white people in general are your enemies, according to this prayer, um, that's how your view is of them. There's the white one, the white people who like stand in, in, like they make it their entire mission in life to fight what you see as racial injustice. And I think we would disagree on what that even is, even though we both would agree that it's a significant issue today. And you see that they're the ones who like pick it and they lay their lives down and they go for it. And other than those people, you kind of hate all other white people and you sort of want to hate them and you even ask for prayer that God would help you hate them. And you overcoming is, isn't really repenting of that attitude, it seems. It seems. It's not. Um, that's definitely not Christian. This is definitely not Christ-like. This is obviously not a Christian thing to say. So how then does she actually deal with it? Her response we can find in her blog which is right here. This is the blog for Dr. Shaniqua. It's her musings. And she has writings on race, religion, and wellness. Now, I don't know if Dr. Shaniqua is actually a Christian or if she's just like a religious person. I'm not really sure where she stands on these issues. I think in modern progressive Christianity that the definition of what it means to be Christian is so loose that it, I don't know what people believe when they say, I'm, a, I'm you know, that they're part of that. So Dr. Shaniqua's musings, here's her prayer of a weary black woman. This is her response to critics. I want you to notice how she characterizes critics. And I'd like for you to notice how she defends herself. Let's think about these issues. Hopefully we can rise above the two extremes. The there's no such thing as racism extreme, which I think is wrong. And the um, progressive Christianity, critical race theory response to racism, which I think is also wrong. Like we need to be of a different, we're, we're like on a different plane as Christians. We rise above all that, hopefully God willing. Prayer of a weary black woman. She says, last year I had a chance to contribute to a collection of prayers written by a diverse group of Christian women. Okay. So she says they're Christian women. Again, I don't really know what that means for progressive Christians. I don't think that their Christianity often even is Christianity. Um, curated by Sarah BC or Bessie, um, I don't know. I can't remember how she pronounces that name. Uh, a Rhythm of Prayer debuted this earlier this year and made bestseller lists in Canada and the United States. It's a strongly worded prayer modeled after the imprecatory Psalms. Keep in mind, she's like, hey, here's her defense already. It's modeled, what I'm praying is modeled after a special category of Psalms. Imprecatory Psalms are the Psalms where the, the author of the Psalm is asking for God to judge people or to punish people or to take people out. Okay, that's a specific kind of category of Psalm. Uh, and it, we do have imprecatory psalms, and they are challenging to work through. But we're going to talk about that. I'll actually share one of them with you today. It begins, her prayer, Dear God, please help me to hate white people. Since it's already circulating online, I'm including the full text below. Oops, <laughs> zoomed over there. Um, I've actually put a link in the video description to the full text of the prayer. You can check that out. It's her link. She's the one that provided it, so I'm not violating some copyright thing. I urge you to purchase the book as well. Let me share a bit of background about the prayer I wrote in a heated moment. A white person, now here's the context. This is what led to the prayer. A white person, someone who I would have called a friend, like what happened caused her to question the very nature of the friendship, it seems, dropped the N-word in casual conversation. Now I know, like, let me, secret window into the white world of Mike Winger. Okay, I have lots of friends that aren't white, but, <laughs> but even in secret, even in private, I just don't hear people in my circle ever doing this okay i know it happens i'm just there's those who think that like maybe in secret off camera i would be like doing the same thing dropping the inward like i don't nor do i 
do anything that, that, that I think would rise to any sort of level of prejudice or racism that goes on there. Um, I don't believe that I do that. But I also don't really hear other people generally doing it. It does happen though. It does happen though. But I wouldn't say it's part of my Christian culture that I'm in, the church I belong to, the Christians that I know, the friends I hang out with. I do know people who aren't really going to church who do sometimes do this kind of thing. So I would just say Christianity, again, it's the cure. It's the cure to this thing. Real Christianity. So someone drops the N-word. Notice that I didn't write it out. That's because I don't say it. I don't say it either. Uh, because I don't. I don't. She doesn't write it. I don't say it either, especially not with a hard R. The word is traumatic for me. I'm a lifelong Southerner who is only one generation removed from sharecropping. Now listen, this is where I'm gonna. my heart's going to break. And it should. Because what she's going to describe, is, there's reality here. It's real and it's horrific stuff. My family history is full of racial trauma. When my paternal grandfather was seven, he and his father ran away from a white South Carolina farmer for whom they sharecropped. This would have been around 1915, 50 years after the end of slavery, and they had escaped, had to escape under the cover of darkness because sharecropping was just another form of slavery. Later, his family would be the second black family to move onto his street. His children would integrate with their high school putting their educations in the hands of racist white teachers who did not honor their potential. Okay, I don't, here's again where we're painting with a wide brush. So this, in the storytelling that she offers here, um, every teacher in the school was racist. Everyone. I mean, she doesn't know these teachers. They're all dead, right? But but they're all racist to her. But that's that's her critical race theory coming in and saying all, you know, white people ultimately have this race thing going on because it's white, being white makes you racist. That's part of critical race theory. Um, which is just wrong. At any, way, at any rate, there may have been some racism there. I just wouldn't want to go overboard. Uh, and that's just one side of my family. My maternal side has similar stories, including the murder of a family member who was a civil rights activist. The inward, Now, I don't know if the family was murdered because they were a civil rights activist or they were murdered and they were a civil rights activist, whatever. The point is that kind of thing does happen and we're aware of that. The inward is not a word we use because it's a word that comes with memory, painful and traumatic memory. So... And I'm going to quote her here. She says, so I was hella triggered when the when that person used the N-word and I was already past deadline for my contribution. I could have done a lot with that rage. I could have sought vengeance, maybe putting that person on social media blast in order to try to ruin their reputation. She's so righteous. Like she's such a great person that she didn't try to publicly malign them and ruin their reputation and sick the dogs upon them. And I'll tell you what, um, as much as she's going to complain that that there, there are uh, people who are coming at her because of her her abomination of a prayer, which is what it is. Um, let's not pretend that progressive Christians are gentle and kind with those who disagree with them. <laughs> I mean, they're not. They usually try to take the posture of a victim while painting the ugliest pictures po possible of those who they disagree with. I, I got this recently from Brandon Robertson, who's tweeting about how he's received death threats that were provoked by me. <laughs> unrepentantly like that I knowledgeably provoked death threats even though in my, the video where I actually came against people for even making fun of his appearance okay there's no treatment like this like and and if you want to reach out to Dr. Shaniqua I have a word for you at the end of this on how you how you should reach out to her with the love of Christ right with hope not with um, rage Anyway, so she doesn't do that but I didn't I took my rage to God as the psalmist and the prophets did before me Okay, no, she doesn't. She pretends that it's just like the psalmists do, but there's a very big difference. We'll talk about that in a minute. I didn't even ask God to take revenge on my enemies, as the psalmists often did. I took my anger to God. I owned it. I was truthful to God about what I was struggling with because I believe that the God who knows us intimately, this is key, he can handle anything we bring. I raged against the different types of white Christians who make the journey toward racial justice so hard. I, I think that Dr. Shaniqua is right that there are white Christians who are making the journey to social justice hard, I, or racial justice hard. I think that Dr. Shaniqua is making the journey toward racial justice hard as well, because this isn't justice. She's operating from a weird paradigm that's not really just. So it's, it's on both sides. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, forgive me, you guys, in the, in the live chat... I know I'm triggering a million people right now, but um, uh, sorry. We gotta we gotta deal with these issues. They're they're being thrown at us, and if we're gonna process them through biblical lenses, 
through 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 glasses that that represent Christ and the way we view our lives, then it's going to be jumping into a rage mob and telling them all they're wrong and pointing them to the gospel of Christ. That that's that's what I'm doing. That's what we're doing now. Um, okay, so um, let's talk about this for a brief moment. God knows, God knows. He knows me intimately. He can handle anything I bring. And I've heard this before from others that you can pray anything you want to God because God's big enough and strong enough to take it. There's a, there's a truth to this. Like God is like big enough and strong enough to take it. But can I say there's a problem with this as well? The Bible does not model the idea that anything I say to God is okay because I'm speaking from my emotions and my experience. This is a very dangerous perspective for people to have because your your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And I'm, I'm quoting scripture there. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So often, if those nowadays who want to tap into their deep emotions as if it represents their truest self, they're tapping into deceptions and wickedness and they're making that the representation of who they are. Oftentimes in prayer, we have repentant attitudes. We have one example in the Bible of somebody who just let loose on God, and it's Job. Job, let, not in the Psalms, not like she has, not the way she did, not like her. We don't have that, but something similar in the book of Job. And in, in Job, he's, he's raging his folly before God as the book progresses. It gets worse and worse. At the end of it, God doesn't go, Job, I'm big enough to handle it. Go ahead and say what you got to say. You know, here I'm here to be your therapist. I'm just going to nod my head in agreement and say, and how did that make you feel? And how did that make you feel? Like this is not our full relationship with God. Um, he can take what's in your heart, but you got to bring it in submission, right? When, when Job rails at God, God shows up in the book of Job and rebukes Job for it. He calls him a fool. And then Job responds and says, I repent in dust and ashes. I, I was stupid. I said dumb things and I'm so sorry. I spoke of things I didn't understand. And he repents of it. Like Job's not like, well, I bore my heart to the Lord like the Psalms do. Like, no, none of that. This is different than the Psalms. This is different than what we get in the Bible as our model for pouring our hearts out to God. The, the difference is this. Dr. Shaniqua shows no submission to the commands or the calling of Christ. Whereas in the Psalms, when we have the, the, the hearts being poured out, there's a sense of submission to God. There's a sense of God. I'm not just you deal with my emotions, but rather I'm, I'm yielding to you. I'm yielding to you. Even Psalm 22, right? My God, why have you forsaken me? The, the very same Psalm affirms, but yet you are just, you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. Like there's an affirmation that God, you're good. So yes, I'm going through this, but you're still good. Do you understand? There's a restraint in the Psalms that does not exist in this particular prayer that doesn't exist in general in progressive Christianity that makes storytelling, storytelling becomes the authoritative way in which you establish truth, right? Because when someone just tells you their story, like Dr. Shaniqua does, here's my history, my family, you can't argue against that. You're a jerk. Like, Mike, you're a horrible person because you're saying something about how wrong she is, but, but she's speaking from her story and her life experiences, and you don't know how many times she's been or treated poorly or how hard it was for her to get her PhD or getting respect in her field. I don't. And I would acknowledge that all that may well be true. But that doesn't justify her reinterpretation of prayer, her her racial racist attitude towards white people. Like this isn't okay. We can't let our experiences and our stories guide our theology about what we believe or else we do end up with progressive Christianity, which is a very dangerous undermining of the Christian faith, or it starts with me, my experience, my feelings. And then I end up recreating a Jesus. That's just, he's like the therapist who acknowledges me, nods and kind of says, I'll never tell you you're wrong. I'll just be like, Hmm, I'm going to make you feel better by the end of this session. That's pretty much the goal. So she says, God knows us intimately can handle anything we bring. I raged against the different types of white people, white Christians who make the journey toward racial justice so hard. But then as the imprecatory Psalms often do, I turned it. I turned it. Now, before we come to how she turned it, let's look at an example of an imprecatory psalm. We're going to look here at um, probably the closest one, I think, she would point to. She didn't say which one she model, modeled it after. But we'll look at Psalm 139. And this one is obviously a very imprecatory psalm. It talks about hate. This is why I picked this one, because it speaks specifically about hating people. Right? And uh, it starts in verse 19, where he gets down to this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. 
Then verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? So the psalmist here is saying, hey, I cannot stand these people, Lord. I hate them. That is something that I think I would have to take very carefully. I'm not just going to echo this, right? Like think of all the people that you could just say, I hate them. But now let's look at some context and let's ask, can you recklessly take this and apply it towards white Christians, the nice ones, right? Or can you do this? Um, who is the psalmist talking about? Notice the text. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. First off, the psalmist, like, like this is actually a good quality of the psalms. He's not going to go and kill people. He's like, Lord, there are wicked people. I wish you would take care of them. This is the nature of the Psalms. It commits justice to God. Justice is for God. Her, her prayer is not about justice at all. It's just about internal hatred. That's all it's about is my, my rage towards people. This is about justice. God, deal with the wicked. And to see how wicked they are, we have this phrase, O men of blood, depart from me. Men of blood is a phrase you might miss in English. It means those who are murderers. So who's the people that he's angry about? Literally active murderers. God, I wish you would take out these people who are murdering other people. They're men of blood. Okay, now the prayer takes a different connotation and you're like, wow, they're murderers. What, what else do, are they doing? They're speaking against you with malicious intent. They take his name in vain. So they, in the nation of Israel, which has a covenant with God, a religious government, theocracy, right? Here they are rebelling against the God who they have made covenant with. And so he's appealing to God to deal with them. So they're spiritually wrecking people. They're physically destroying people. Now, it's true that in our culture, we have something called microaggressions. And I think quickly, people, some people would say, and I may step on toes here, you guys. I just want to think biblically about everything, which includes things that make you mad, okay? So um, we have something called microaggressions. And I think that the way this has played out in our day-to-day -day lives is that we think a microaggression, like say someone going... Um, well, you know how they are. And, and there's, a, there's a subtle implication they might be talking about a gender or a race, racial group. You know how they are. That that's a microaggression, perhaps. Maybe that's even a, a macroaggression. That's not what the, the psalmist is talking about. Like what, what we'll do is we now want to take that. That's a microaggression. Maybe it's a macroaggression even. And that connects to overall systemic injustice and racism. You're effectively guilty of murder now. And what we're doing is we're inflating crimes. We're making this unbalanced scales on how we respond to different things. This is why people lose their jobs because they had a, a an off tweet, a tweet that was like, man, that was, that was probably not the wisest tweet in the world. But they're like, you lose your job, you're ostracized from society, people hate your guts now. This is the result of critical race theory in our culture. It takes and magnifies specs to be planks and turns planks into specs so that in the plank eye analogy Jesus gave. So yes, he's upset with them because they're murderers who are blaspheming God. She's upset because they um, aren't marching in, par in parades or presentations or demonstrations that she thinks are important. Or because they accidentally let slip a very foolish and harmful word. I agree. But is that a cause for rage and hatred? Obviously not. This is, this is a distortion of the Psalms. So yes, who does he hate? Do you want to hate those who hate you, O Lord? Uh, at least the psalmist has at the center of his heart a love for God. God is king. God is the center of, of, of it all. I'm hating those who hate you, Lord. What I hate in them is their hatred for you. Whereas this is different. Uh, her, Dr. Shaniqua and many people who are part of critical race theory stuff, their main motivation is based upon certain sins that they care about and other ones they don't. In fact, let me highlight if I can what I think is kind of a strange hypocrisy. Many progressive Christians started out complaining that Christians and the evangelical church had made too big of a deal about certain sins, in particular, abortion, uh, homosexuality, um, uh, fornication, you know, sex before marriage, you know, sexual related things, that they made too big of a deal about that or modesty, uh, purity, culture, that they made too big of a deal about this. And so I've always thought that the progressive Christians had some legitimate criticisms. I don't know if those are legitimate ones, but they have some legitimate criticisms. And then on the other end, here they are. Here's their solution. Their new Christianity makes no big deal about abortion. You can kill your babies. That's no big deal. Um, you know, sexual stuff, total liberty, completely unbiblical license to do whatever you want when it comes to sex and all this stuff. Complete like abandonment of the issues of sin that we should be caring about. And instead, they make too big of a deal about one particular sin, right? And only if white people do it racism. 
if it's if you're a white person this this is weird this is like not christianity this is like an amorphous blob like i think that racism is a sin it belongs over here was <laughs> like faithful christians should all recognize this is a big issue a big issue a significant issue partiality is something god hates but but yeah that's the i think a hypocrisy the hippocratic moment going on there um now what is what is his statement here um notice it's a confession he does not say please help me hate them lord it's a confession. Lord, I do hate them. I ex I confess. I hate them. I hate them. And why? I feel like I have good reasons. Here's where Dr. Shaniqua has something in common with the psalmist. I feel like I have good reasons, although Dr. Shaniqua's reasons are very different. Her reasons, I think, are micro instead of macro. These are about murder, uh, blasphemy. Hers are about microaggressions, I imagine. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Then he says this, how does the psalm end? What's the turning point in this imprecatory psalm, Psalm 139? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the psalmist lays out a confession. Lord, I hate these people. I feel like I have good reasons to hate them. But now I pray, search my heart and help me be purified. So the prayer is not an affirmation of the goodness of this hatred. It's a confession that... I think I have righteous indignation towards these people, but search my heart and make sure that I'm right in this. I think that that's actually a good model for prayer. That is not the model we have in her prayer. Her prayer ends very differently. Her prayer doesn't give any hint. I mean, I read it to you guys already, but it doesn't give any hint that she's like repentant or she's like, search me. I, I, I'm concerned here. None of that. Nor, does it, nor is it just a confession about hatred. It's a request to hate. Okay, so when she says, I prayed... Um, in her defense here, I prayed as the imprecatory Psalms often do. Like, that's not true. That's not true. This is not the imprecatory Psalms. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of what Peter said about people in 2 Peter 3.16, one of the lesser known 3.16 verses. <laughs> and here he says um, about Paul's writings that he speaks in about things that are hard to understand. Okay, Paul's writings, he writes sometimes about complex concepts. And then Peter goes on and says, which ignorant and unstable, the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures or the other scriptures. This is what Peter's saying. Like, hey, there's people who they take difficult passages of scripture, like, I don't know, imprecatory Psalms, and they twist it to their own destruction. That's exactly what's happening here with Dr. Shaniqua. It's not a deep care for the Psalms. It's more of like a, a, um, a, a felt theology. I'm starting with my heart. I feel this. I go to Psalms. I go, that feels similar. So then I feel I have justification. So then she goes on and says, I prayed for God. Listen to this. This is, this is just not true. This is actually deceptive, what she writes here. I prayed for God not to let anger and hatred overwhelm me. I asked to be able to continue to love those who hate me. I prayed to remain true to the biblical mandate for peace, justice, and reconciliation, even when I have very little hope of its possibility. Did she pray that God would not let anger and hatred overwhelm her? Did she ask, God, help me to love those who hate me? Let's, let's look at her prayer one more time and see if that's true, because now I think that somebody's gaslighting somebody. Um, okay, uh, towards the end of her prayer, she says, free me from this burden of calling them to confession and repentance. Grant me a get-out-of-judgment-free card if I make white people the exception to your command to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. But I will trust in you, my Lord. Okay, that phrase is empty without more context. What does it mean, I will trust in you? She goes, but I will trust in you, my Lord. You have kept my love and my hope steadfast even when they have trampled on it. What does that even mean? Her love and her hope is steadfast. Oh, her love for the people that she's praying to hate. No, wait. This is a confession that she still has love and hope. Yet, moments before, it's not a change, right? It's a confession that I'm currently loving and hopeful, yet she's praying to hate people. So this doesn't seem to be like a corrective moment. You have rescued me from the monster of racism when it sought to devour me. Except on critical race theory, racism is something that white people have and not something... Dr. Shaniqua is a woman, and so she's part of a marginalized gender, and she's black, so she's part of a marginalized racial group. So she is twice... In the, this is intersectionality. She's she's got two check marks of oppression, so she she's just not racist. Like it's it's by nature of her her color and her gender, she's not racist on critical race theory, which is not a Christian view. So when she says she's been rescued from racism on critical race theory, I just interpret that as people being racist to her, 
which seems to be what she is talking about. She's not saying God stopped her from her racist attitude towards white people. She's saying God stopped racist white people from messing up her life. She says, you've lifted up my head when it was low and healed my heart when it was wounded. You've not given me up to slavery or Jim Crow or the systems of structural oppression, but you've called me to be an agent in your ministry of justice and reconciliation. See how she's been rescued from the racism of white people. That seems to be the context. You've not allowed me to languish alone, but you've lighted the path towards beloved community with loving witnesses of the ancestors, elders, and sojourners. So she's rejoicing that she has like people in her life that are important in, in the past. Um, so she presses on in love. And, and that's the end. Thus in the spirits of Fanny, Ida, Polly, and Ella, and Septima, and Coretta, I pray and pr I press on in love. Amen. There has been no correction of the past bad attitude because I don't know that she sees it as a wrong attitude. It's just weird. The end of this prayer is, is just, it's just weird. All right. We should talk a little more about this. Let me talk about something that I think is happening in the course of all this. I think it is storytelling immunity. Storytelling immunity. We'll look at more of her defense in just a moment. Uh, what I call storytelling immunity is represented here in, uh, in one of the phrases we're going to get to in just a second in her defense. But the idea is this. Um, just like how she says prayers, God can handle whatever I bring. And she talks a lot about her story and about oppression of the past. This is important stuff, but I don't think it justifies her then offering a worldview interpretation of events that goes through her story. So let me read on a little bit and we'll find where the storytelling immunity is going in. I, I'm making up the phrase storytelling immunity. I don't know a phrase for this in our modern culture, but you get the idea, right? If someone tells you why they abandoned Christ theologically, you argue against it. But if they give you their deconversion story and about how hard it was for them to turn away from Christ and how struggling they were, it's like you can't argue with it because it's storytelling immunity, right? That's what I'm talking about. So let's read on a little bit more in her defense. Let's see if I can find the spot. Um, a few days ago, a Virginia pastor decided to post multiple screenshots of my prayer on Twitter saying, this kind of thinking is a direct result of CRT and is completely anti-biblical. But that's true. That pastor was accurate, um, just factually accurate. CRT is a reference to critical race theory, which conservatives have been attacking for months. Well, it's not true, so we should probably come against it. Since then, his followers and other conservatives have targeted me for attack harassing me, oops, harassing me through email, phone, and social media. In addition, they've bombarded my institution. Multiple conservative media outlets have picked up the story. Uh, what's really important here is that she goes, they've been attacking critical race theory. What's my response? And they're attacking me personally, which means they must be wrong. The subtle implication is that they're wrong because I'm a victim. There's no discussion here about what critical race theory actually teaches or about the substantive criticisms that people like Neil Shenvey have been ringing against critical race theory. Again, I'll put that interview link below for later. The critics, a word I use lightly since this is not good faith engagement, but it is good faith engagement. That's not true. Okay, like, I don't know who she's talking about, this pastor. Um, I She mentioned one tweet. She's not giving examples of bad faith engagement. Um, Neil Shenvey is accused of this all the time, but if you look at the guy, he, he seems to be very carefully understanding. He's quoting all the time. He's gathering primary resources. He's doing his homework. It's just a lie about him. About It's just a character attack to avoid discussing critical race theory. Anyway, are willful, they're willfully misinterpreting the prayer. Now, let me ask you this. Did I willfully misinterpret that prayer? Did I misinterpret critical race theory about intersectionality and the victim dynamics and power dynamics and stuff? I don't think so to an extent that can only be explained by hermeneutical incompetence or willful maliciousness. Notice it's all personal attacks. No evidence, just personal attacks. This is part of a pattern of abusive behavior. Again, it's, you, once you're the victim, you win. The victim gets to tell you the truth of all things. If you're the victim, you win. You own truth. You have storytelling immunity. That is being waged largely against black women, scholars, and clergy who do intersectional justice work. In all truth, my familial and personal experiences of racism have given me thousands, maybe even millions of reasons to hate white people. It could easily be seen as justified and I could find biblical precedent for it. No, you can't. This is one of those throwaway sentences. You could easily find biblical precedents if you take scripture out of context, the way you have the imprecatory Psalms. If you take you, you, People who say they can justify wickedness with the Bible are people who I already know don't take the Bible seriously and they don't care as deeply, at least as I do. And you do, right? Because I know my audience, you guys care about what scripture is really teaching, even if it means you're wrong and you have to change your mind. You want to know what, what God has said. But this, no, 
no, no, you, you can't really do that. Not when you look at all of it in context and you carefully examine it and you understand it. Uh, you look at differences between old covenant and new covenant. You understand what it means to be in Christ. Uh, you can't, you cannot do that. Then she says, and I'm going to quote her here. These are her words, but damn it, if God hasn't given me a different spirit, one that insists on looking for goodness and possibility, like again, the oozing self-righteousness, like this is just what you see. Uh, but man, as much as I have a right to hate all the people I want to hate, I have, I am just such an awesome person. It's, a, it's hard for me. It's impossible for me to hate because I am love. I am just the, the, the embodiment of goodness. <laughs> That's how it comes off. So God's given me a different spirit, one that insists on looking for goodness and possibility, one that holds holy rage and holy hope together. Uh, no, that's not the prayer we read. Many black women can connect to that prayer. I, I don't I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that at all. That there are even those who have experienced way worse stuff than what Dr. Shaniqua has that could talk about major, major racism against their lives. And they could they would read that and they it would stir into all that bitterness and all that understandable anger. But the response that she has in that prayer is not the Christian response. That's the thing. Just because you can connect to it doesn't mean you should stay connected to it. You should move to Christ. You should connect to Christ. Let him resolve these issues and start to see people through the lens of the oneness we have in Jesus. Then she goes on, especially those of us who labor for justice within and beyond the church. Loving people who are committed to hating us. And how on earth did it turn around? She's now saying that her perspective is, I love those who hate me, but that's not this prayer. This prayer has two things going on. One, an unashamed hatred for various people for things that should not cause hatred, right? Like because it, because microaggressions turn into macro, turn into like, uh, you didn't stand in line long enough with me and now you're, you're part of the oppression of whole groups of people. Um, and not that there isn't oppression of whole groups of people, but just one thing is not the other. But now she's saying, I'm loving, I'm committed to loving people who are committed to hating us. Where was that in the prayer? It wasn't there. It didn't exist. It didn't exist. Was it implied when it says, but I trust you, Lord? Uh, no, you went on for like three pages on how much you want to hate different kinds of white people. And then you said, I'll trust the Lord. Uh, no, they're committed to disenfranchising us, incarcerating us, abusing us in myriad other ways and is hard, right? And still we persist because man, oh man, we are some really, really righteous, awesome, loving, wonderful people who absolutely hate most white people. <laughs> it's just like, I don't get it. I don't get it. You guys like re read this prayer and replace white people with any other group. Lord, help me hate Chinese people. Help me hate black people. Help me hate school teachers. Like name the group here that has offended you. And, um, I know I haven't, I haven't suffered great racial oppression in my life. Not that I'm aware of. Um, I had an incident that happened when I was a kid. I was about uh, 14. I was up in Vegas visiting family. We had family go up there for the summers. And me and a friend of mine, we walked over to a 7-Eleven to buy some Slurpees. And it was just me and this other guy, Sean. Oh, I can't remember his name. Wouldn't rest of his name wouldn't probably recognize him if I saw him. Uh, but anyway, me and Sean were heading over to the 7-Eleven. And there's these four black guys who come up to us. And I, I, I'm sitting there, I had a splinter in my foot. I'm sitting on the curb trying to get the splinter out of my foot before we go walking more. And I hear them laughing as they start walking towards us. And one of them says, go punch that white kid. And he walked up and like, I'm sitting on the ground. I look up and he, they were older kids. They were probably 16, 17 years old. And one of them socked me in the face right there. Got a big fat lip, blood everywhere. And then they all spit on me. They spit on me, like spit on me. Right? Why? Probably because I was a white kid. And they felt like it was okay to just hate somebody who was white. Now, as a Christian, I I cannot turn that experience into an excuse to hate black people. Or even, get this, even the very guys who did it to me. I can't use that as an excuse to hate them either. That's wrong. Now, what if that had happened again and again and again, and it happened to my grandpa and it happened to my, my, my dad and it happened to me and that we were suffering in poverty as a result of this, the long oppression that had happened, then I need to take that to Jesus and I need to pray, Lord, help me to love those who hate me, to pray for those who spitefully use me. This is the prayer. The prayer is I got to turn this into something different. Christianity solves this problem in different ways, in different ways. First off, as a Christian, you have to defy these two groups, one that denies racism and one that turns it into critical race theory and progressive Christianity, la-la land, 
thinking, which is racism in the name of anti-racism, it ends up causing problems. Um, th this group wants to pretend that they own social justice and everyone's just denying it. But we need to deny that stereotype and care about real justice. But real justice as a Christian, here's here's where, and I'm going to give you the link again to the Neil Shenvey interview. And there's more on that. But real justice as a Christian is equal treatment of all people. It's not equal outcomes. This is a big thing that we're going, we have going on in our culture. Equal outcomes means that if I look at, say, um, uh, disparities in um, in the performance of gender, say men and women, or the performance, the, the job performance, the job pay and the financial, you know, how much money people have. And, and say black people have less, uh, Chinese people have more. Then I go, okay, well, that's racism. Then, then that's obviously racism. Uh, that's not true. Okay, it could be, that could be racism, but that's not how you measure racism. If you see like rates of incarceration, like that are much higher amongst uh, black families and communities. That might be racism, but it's not guaranteed to be racism because outcomes don't prove racism, it's treatment. So you have to go back a step and ask, how did it get that way? Now, it may be that the rates of incarceration or whatever, those things are being caused by racism, that's possible. But it's the treatment that scripture gets us to talk about that we need to deal with, the treatment of people, not the outcomes that they experience. So equal treatment under law, this is very, very big deal. This is huge. In scripture, it's it's made, it's made clear, people who are oppressed are more often strangers, right? Actually, it's not race so much. It's they're strangers. That is, they're, part of, they're in a community that they're not really part of. Those people tend to be oppressed and that might be related to race or it might not, right? So like um, when, uh, when somebody from Mexico comes up here to the US and they're trying to get a job, they're probably gonna get paid less because they can't run to the government for help because they're not citizens. Okay, that that's injustice, right? That's injustice. That's the oppression of strangers, right? Mike, you sound like a Democrat. Okay, fine. I don't care. I'm not a Democrat. <laughs> but that seems like that would be an example of oppression of strangers that would be consistent with a biblical mandate to not do that. But there's also oppression towards rich people, white people. You could be a rich white man and be oppressed as a result. Because as soon, and this is what critical race theory does, is it encourages the unfair treatment of people. It doesn't bring us back to fairness. It brings us to unfairness. It says we have to fix outcomes, not treatment. So we'll change treatment to be unfair so that we can have the outcome we think that might produce, whether we're right or wrong about it. And forgive me if I'm talking on issues that um, for some of are like, I'm not familiar with this. Check out the video on critical race theory. But yes, the Bible does does especially highlight the widows, the orphans, the aliens, or the strangers, right? The people who aren't citizens of a country as being those who are more likely to be oppressed. Yes, they are, right? So um, that's a big deal. We need to deal with that. But it also guards the people against oppressing the rich in response. So you're not to oppress anybody. You give everybody equal treatment, fair treatment, and focus on that, not outcomes. I think that's a biblical perspective we should have. Anybody can be oppressed, including old, rich, white people. Um, and uh, we're not we're not guilty of the sins of our great ancestors. We're, we're not like going back 300 years. If you find that I've, I've got racist ancestors, like, hello, I am not guilty for that. I'm not. And if you want to hold people guilty for the, for the sins of their ancestors, then it's like, what do you think it means to be in Christ? The gospel is the solution here, where we learn in the gospel that there's no Jew or Greek or slave or free, that this is so important. We find that there is meant to be no separation. This, people don't realize, um, and I get on a hobby horse here, was a big deal in the first century. When you look at the early church, the big difference was between Jew and Gentile. And Jews really had a high-minded view of themselves as compared to Gentiles. Part of this was because of the great paganism that went on culturally and in the past with Gentiles. Part of it was because of the oppression of Romans against the Jewish people. So there was oppression, it was all that. But what's interesting is that in the Christian church, it wasn't the Gentiles who rejected the Jews. This is what's really weird. It was the, Jew, the Jews, the Jewish Christians, who were rejecting the Gentiles. Like, that's so different. You wouldn't expect that because the Jews are the marginalized. The Jews are the oppressed. But when it came to the religious value of Jesus, the Jews had a stronger claim to Christ, to Jesus. He's their Messiah, right? And so the Gentiles are coming into a Jewish belief when they believe in the Messiah. So they were the ones who were becoming oppressed. And there's whole debates, like, do they have to become Jewish to be 
saved, to be followers of Christ. And this is going on in the early church. And it was such a huge deal to the Holy Spirit. It was such a huge deal to the apostles that they dealt with this and hashed this issue out and explained that in Christ, there's no Jew or there's no Greek. So now those who say we should not be colorblind, I want to say there is at least some kind of colorblindness that is represented in the gospel. It's some kind, okay? Colorblindness where I pretend to not notice that you're a different like ethnicity than me or pretend that that has no impact on your life. Like that's not good colorblindness. But there seems like there's a good colorblindness that says, hey, in Christ, I will treat you all the same because those things don't matter in Christ. I'm going to look at all people, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. It just, deal, it just dealt with so many different uh, oppress, oppressive and racist type relationships when the scripture says that and it blew them all out of the water now how is it that the gospel does this i think that the key here and this is what i think progressive christians are missing and i think our world is missing is the recognition that not only does the gospel give us huge human value christ is willing to die for you you're made in god's image all humans are in god's image so you just can't look at any group and treat them that way you just can't because group identity starts with Adam and starts with us being in the image of God. And secondarily, group identity then is renewed in Christ, where we're all one. We're all one. No male, female, none of, them, none of that matters uh, as far as uh, equal treatment to each other. So there's something that's missing, though, because I think a progressive Christian would acknowledge those things. But I think what they won't acknowledge is the humility that leads us to this being a glorious discovery. And what I mean here is the part of the gospel that's the icky part, the bad news this is Romans 1 through 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the gospel does proclaim that there is guilt, It's but the primary guilt of man isn't racist guilt from your white ancestors that I m might have, according to critical race theory stuff. Um, nor is it like societal systemic injustice where society's racist on my behalf and therefore I have guilt because of the racism of society, where it's almost like the, the most important sin issue of our time, of, of any human's life, is, is racist stuff, which makes black people good and victims and white people bad and victimizers. And then that's how we see people as a starting point before the gospel even enters the picture. That's the critical race theory kind of perspective people are absorbing. But instead, the gospel says, hey, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. You, regardless of your ancestors, you have fallen short of the glory of God. You are worthy of his judgment and of being rejected by God. And it is by his grace that he that he brings you in. Now, when I realize that I'm a sinner, like Mike Winger deserves the, the righteous judgment of God upon my life, I just can't write a prayer like that because I don't think that I'm that good. I think I'm with you in the mud as a wicked sinner who needs the grace of God. And when he gives his grace to me, then I have the, the resources by which I turn to those who've hurt me, maybe because of racist reasons, maybe because of other reasons. They've wounded, they've hurt me. And I go, you know what? Whatever you did to me, God forgave me of that and more. So I forgive you too. I'm one who's been forgiven much. So I love much. God, let me extend to them the grace that you've extended to me. Do you get that this is, this is the gospel heals. It really is the problem. But I think that, um, that progressive Christianity has distorted versions of the, the gospel just becomes a story of social justice, which is about like equal and it's no longer every, every word has a new definition. Everything's changed. I, I hope that this has been helpful <laughs> for you guys, man, this particular prayer rhythm of prayer. I tried to, to look at it graciously, but accurately, like I'm not playing games. I'm not going to jump into the victim mentality stuff that I see going on where, where you can, you know, become the authority because, because you're the victimized person. But I also want to encourage you guys with this, just like the gospel is the solution when it comes to, um, Dr. Shaniqua, please extend to her praying for those who hate you. Like if you're a white person who's all offended and you're like, she probably hates me, then pray for her, bless her. If you're going to send her a message, send her a message. God bless you. I think you're wrong on these issues, but I want you to know, I, I, I love you and care about you. I think that that needs to be our posture as Christians, that we need to not be taking imprecatory Psalms out of context to use them to uh, do all this weirdness. Um, you guys, this is where progressive Christianity leads. I think most Christians, most Christians, their gut just tells them it's wrong. 
But they also realize these stories are real. The racism that's happened in the past is a very real thing. And the racism that's happening now is a real thing. I'm just going to say that critical race theory is adding to it instead of taking it away. And so this fight for social justice is actually, it's, it's distorted. And so it's not going to create real justice. And it certainly is not acknowledging the real gospel of Christ. Our core identity, made in the image of God, I need forgiveness by the grace of Christ. So do you. Racism, a secondary issue to the gospel, but the gospel cures it. All right. That is all. I will see you guys on Friday for the Q&A. I do plan on having it this time. I apologize. I canceled last Friday. I just had a, like a migraine and I like, it's very rare for me where like, I just couldn't think clearly enough to be like, I got to be on the spot to try to give you guys the best answers I can. I'm just reading these questions as they come in. So we'll be back going next Friday. I wouldn't expect any, any problems coming up. Uh, I'm good. I'll put a link right here to the critical race theory interview I did with Neil Shenvey. I think it brought a lot of clarity and honesty to the topic from a Christian perspective.